Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, here we are, episode 157. This is 157. We've been going strong since, uh, I think it's 2018. So, yeah, we've been doing this for four years. And try to crank one out at least. Uh, it'd be nice to do once a week, but it's really more like once every week and a half, sometimes two weeks. But anyway, uh, if you have any questions or comments for us, you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean, or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. kbmakel at aol.com, and I will get at it uh, the next podcast. And a lot of times I will also send you a uh, at least a personal greeting or something. So there we are. You know, I hate bringing up politics. Um, there's one podcast that says, you know, hey, you got to talk about politics because guns are politics. And very sadly, that is true. That is very sadly true. Um, you know, we came off of what I consider to be a very disappointing election. Uh, th- there were some bright spots, though. Uh, the bright spots are that the Sasquatch in Georgia, what's her name, Stacey Abrams, the the rotund romance novel writing person who actually is an election denier. I told you, the Democrats are what they accuse other people of being. Um, <laughs> she was soundly thumped. And, and basically, that's her exit. I mean, she's, she's done. Uh, the, other, the other good points, Nancy Pelosi is no longer Speaker of the House, so that old crone can, can shuffle back to California. Uh, doesn't get the fr- private military jet, doesn't get to fly on, you know, Air Force jet and pay basically coach fare to, to do it. So she's, she's basically done. I think a lot of people have looked, you know, the Democratic Party is starting to crumble in some ways. Uh, a lot of their leadership is, you know, Feinstein, Biden, now Pelosi. I don't think she's going to be a leader, but they're going to they'll elect some other fool. Um, you know, they got some age and they're just ideologically trapped. Um, they're, they're a hard left party. I mean, if John F. Kennedy were alive today and in politics, uh, he would be a Republican. He would be a very conservative Republican. That's how far the Democratic Party, and sadly to say the country at large, has slid left. And, uh, you know, I don't think we would wage a Cold War anymore. Um, I don't I don't think we have the the national will to do much of anything. But that doesn't stop our politicians from ripping us off. Um, and this goes to both parties, predominantly the Democrats, though. I mean, you know, when they tell you inflation is 8%, I mean, that can't be possible. What is it that is going down in price that's counterbalancing food and fuel? I mean, what is it? Just tell us. Tell us what it is. Because it isn't out there. Uh, just stuff I buy, I notice, is 30 to 50% more expensive. And I, I mean, I am not, believe me, I am not an Epicurean. I am not, you know, <laughs> you know, guy eating prosciutto and, and uh, 
uh, fancy cheeses and all this other stuff. I, I buy the same stuff everybody else buys. I, you know, I'm a regular guy, and stuff is going way up, way, way up. So the first big fiction is is that, uh, you know, oh, it's 8% inflation. I don't know who's calculating that. I assume it's the same people who are calculating votes and telling us the Democrats are winning all the time. Um, it seems to be impossible that they do so. Uh, so anyway, um, it is absolutely outrageous. And you just look in shooting. I mean, you know, primers used to be $30. First of all, before all this madness started, going back to the early 2010s, you could find primers on sale. What a concept that is. An alien concept that is now. Um, for 15 under $20 a box of 1000 the normal price was usually about $30, $32, you know, that's that's kind of what that was. Um, now, people are finding them for $125 and count themselves lucky. Um, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Now, that's a lot more than 8 or 10%, if you ask me. Same thing with bullets. Um, the projectiles used for reloading, not, not loaded ammunition. I'll talk about that in a minute. But the, the bullets are just going, they're, they're skyrocketing. I mean, it, 100 bullets is now, you know, 40 or $50. I mean, you start adding this up, powder is now, you know, 40 or $50 a pound. Um, you start adding this up and, and hand loading will still save you money over factory, but it's still, but it's a very expensive proposition. Um, and, and the companies are trying to do some cost control. Whether they pass that on to us, I don't know. But Spear is allegedly going to uh, start electroplating bullets, which is actually a good idea. Unless you have a an overriding accuracy and velocity need, plated bullets work in a lot of calibers just fine. As a matter of fact, they work, they work really good. Uh, same thing with powder coat. I think... You know, you'll see some factory ammunition loaded with powder-coated bullets. Um, that high-tech coating that Missouri Bullet Company uses, I mean, those things are awesome. I mean, I, I bought a thousand nine millimeters a while back and, um, you know, 124 grain cast. And I mean, the, these things are completely coated in this black high-tech coating. I mean, it's like a jacketed bullet and it does not lead. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's where the future of some of that is going, just to try to keep the cost realistic. Um, I really think that that's, uh, that's how we're going to, to wind up. I still think that somebody needs to get into the primer business. And if these reloading companies want to stay in business, it better be them. If, if my heroes, and they are heroes, at Hodgden Powder Company, if they could make primers... You know, keep hand loading because you can have powder and bullets without primers it's not doing you any good. So, I mean, they have to do something to try to get this down to to where the people who want to use the rest of the products, whether it's powder, whether it's bullets that someone's manufacturing, or whether it's the reloading equipment, you know, the hard equipment we use, scales and presses and trimmers, uh, unless they start figuring out how to get us primers at some point we're going to run out 
And when you look at the cost of loaded ammunition, it's psychotic. I was in a gun shop just this weekend. And this is just, <laughs> it, was, it was horrible. The first thing I go in, I, I go in and they have some older guns. And I thought, yeah, this is a pretty cool place. I like any, any place that's got older guns. I like, hence the title Old School Guns. So I see three M1 rifles up on the wall. And so I, I immediately, immediately I'm drawn to them. So I immediately uh, look at them and I look at the price first and it's like $1,249. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's a lot. So I ask the, uh, there, there was, it was a mom and pop operation. So I asked them, hey, can I pick this off the wall and take a look at it? And they say, yes, of course. So I pick it off and I notice immediately, at first I thought this must be a Beretta receiver because I didn't see, you know, the usual markings usually just stand right out and I didn't see any markings. And on closer inspection, it's a CAI, Century Arms International Receiver. Uh, everything else looked pretty much GI, but they had three of these things. Um, you know, to, I, I have to be honest with you, they're worth about... Whatever the sum of the GI parts are in that in that rifle. And they look like they had GI stocks. They weren't the aftermarket stocks. They were GI stocks. Um, they're worth that plus, you know, maybe $75 or $100 for the receiver because a CAI receiver is not as good as a USGI receiver. So there you go. Um, that, was, that was actually kind of shocking. I was like, whoa. I didn't even know these things are still around. Um, I go, they had some primers. And here's what I've, I've kind of picked up. You know, I go around, when I go to these shops, I see, what do they got available for ammo? What do they got available for primers? And some of what I'm seeing is a false flag because I'm looking and I'm seeing, well, they got 7.62 by 39. You know, it's overpriced. It's like $13 a box. And it's Wolf. And then, then I see two yellow boxes. Um... Norinko 762 by 39 and I'm like wait a minute that stuff has been banned from import for almost 30 years now so and then I see other uh, all kinds of other calibers they had and the boxes look a bit worn which tells me that either this proprietor had a big stash of ammo or knows somebody who did and now they're trying to liquidate it at the high price um, one thing was, hey, they had 3040 Crag. I almost picked it up until I saw they wanted 49.95 for 20 rounds. Um, that's over two dollars a round. I mean, that's now granted, you don't see it anywhere else. So if they can get it, they'll get it. But um, that's probably a box of ammo they paid less than twenty dollars for 20 years ago, and it's been sitting around. And now these guys are liquidating it trying to double or triple their money on it. It's what it is. It's just what it is. Um, I don't really call that price gouging um, because people do have a right to hold on to something as an investment and then sell it later for a higher price. Nothing says, well, I paid... And, and there were days when you could buy a thousand rounds, a 7.62 by 39, for 80 bucks. You could buy that. It was no problem. So people would uh, um, buy this stuff and buy how many cases of this. They've probably been sitting on it for 25 years, 30 years. And now they're saying, well, shoot, this 
cases I paid 80 bucks for it but now it's worth 325 yeah I'll sell it you know so you know they, they don't have it's not price gouging but it is telling you that obviously the prices are so high that people are letting go of stuff because they can triple their money the way business works I guess but it's not the way that I can stay that a lot of people can stay in the hobby I mean you know when you get 20 rounds of 30 40 crag for 50 bucks is you know hey I'm, I'm not shooting 416 Rigby here you know <laughs> and and so yeah I thought that was that was pretty harsh pretty harsh so hand loading they're driving us to hand loading I mean if, if you going to shoot if you're anything other than a very casual hunter and I've got a friend who's a very casual hunter he's got a seven millimeter magnum and he keeps like two boxes of ammo on his on himself so that when hunting season rolls around uh, he can go out he can check the zero on his rifle correct it if necessary and still have a few rounds left over in a box that he puts in his magazine and goes hunting with and and it's not like he's going to shoot five deer he's probably going to shoot two deer and he's probably you know gonna if he shoots three times and gets two deer well there you go you know so he goes to maybe a box a year you know if you're doing that yeah fifty dollars a box is is kind of a butt rape but you can do it you can you could do that now we have other folks like myself friend of the podcast and and our associates, um, we like to shoot a lot more than that. So, you know, fifty dollars a <laughs> a box, it doesn't get it. You know, doesn't get it at all. So, that forces you to have to hand load, and with the other prices of the components, uh, forces you to cast bullets. So. You know, and, and of course, that's ammunition is the thing I know the best, and gun stuff and reloading stuff is the thing I know the best. One of the things I'll say, though, is gun prices have gone up, but not really at the rate of this other stuff. I mean, you can still, and, and in fact, I would even say gun prices have come down. You can get budget ARs now that are, you know, 500, just over 500 bucks. Still pretty good deal. Um you know, it used to be that the big the big debate was Mini 14 versus AR-15. This is going back, and they were they were competitively priced. Um, the Colt AR-15 SP1s and the Ruger Mini 14s were about the same retail, about the same. Ruger might have actually been a little bit less, but now the Ruger guns are are frighteningly expensive. Um, they are eight or nine hundred dollar rifles, and the you know, kind of budget ARs are three or four hundred dollars less. You know, depending on how creative you want to get in building your own gun or whatever else. So that's that's kind of where we're sitting. It's a uh, it's a definite definite change. Then there was the old ARAK because AKs were cheap and you could actually build AKs out of kits and guys are doing all that kind of stuff. And you know, now AKs are about I'm sure there are a few that are they're in the $900 and up range depending on what you buy so again they cost as about twice as much as a bargain basement AR and and guess what and guess what um, you know there's no more debate anymore because people just aren't buying AKs unless they want one for a specific reason 
like a collector's item or just to be cool but nobody nobody's putting them head to head and saying and saying the AK is is a much superior rifle they're just not doing that so anyway that's pretty pretty interesting kind of goes down to you know everybody's going to be getting a tax bill between now and and probably June you're going to get a property tax bill and I know there are a few places in the country where um, you don't have property taxes but most places have property taxes and face it if you own land or you own a house they're going to slay you because the values of these things have been artificially inflated and they're going to say well what that house you bought for two hundred thousand dollars is now worth 325 and you know here here's your new property tax bill and what they're trying to do where I live is hide it by saying well we're not changing the rates so to a lot of older people or people who, who don't get it they think oh my tax bill is not going to change what they're what they're not realizing is is that the the extra money harvest will be taken because the values are high the rates will stay the same but the valuation will be a lot higher therefore you'll be paying more so you know it, it comes down to the realistic thing of you have to realize that at both local state and national government there are I call them subhuman creatures who spend who get paid and spend all their time figuring out how to take from you how to take um, they want to take money on a on a broader level they want to take freedom and they want to disarm you they want to just take from you we, we are chattel to them you know hear that again we are chattel to them and they believe that they have every right to take from us and oh by the way they don't really have to protect us with police they don't really have to protect the border and keep keep a flood of uh, illegals and you know just look at the border it's uh you know what i'm going to talk about the border a little bit later but they don't protect us from that they don't protect us from fentanyl and all these things flowing in they don't really protect us against terrorism i mean they they basically you know just quit in afghanistan the disgusting shame of our foreign policy was after 20 years we said we quit we've had enough we quit and left and now the country that we liberated from terrorists is we handed it right back to the same people we handed it right back to the sons of the horrible freaking terrorists that we ousted and it was just it was an absolute failure of arms and let me tell you something I'm a former special operations guy so um, I'm gonna tell you this straight up the Afghanistan thing Iraq was actually believe it or not that's actually been a success we went in there we cleaned it up we did all that we stabilized it and now it's got a functioning government the country's still in one piece for how long I don't know but but it's it's more of a success story um, Afghanistan's an absolute failure and that was that should have been special operations bread and butter 
you know, go out, find these guys hiding in the hills, take them out, use the psychological operations to convince all the people who are harboring, giving shelter, or have knowledge of these, these bad guys to cooperate with the coalition to get them, you know, to, to get rid of these bad guys, the guys who are going to, who ultimately turn around and oppress them. And our, our civil affairs branch who, you know, hey, they can, they can figure out how to build governments, how to, you know, local, you know, municipal services, local governments, kind of district governments kind of thing. They, they can figure out, they, they know how to figure all that out. That was special operations bread and butter, and it's an abject failure. A complete abject failure and one of the reasons it failed is because we have two problems the first problem is for some reason for we need to we need to codify our own legitimacy by uh, coalition warfare so we got all these coalition partners those always become large unwieldy bureaucratic and less effective because it's a coalition. The next thing is we have since the year 2000 there has been a, a campaign against the military culture and you know you started seeing it with tail hook and a few things and what you're seeing now is that they they want an influx of people who may not be the kind of people we need in uniform who are not mission focused who are more agenda focused and you know I you can go the the whole thing of LGBTQ type type deal um, DEI diversity equity and inclusion as opposed to competence anytime you're using something other than competence I don't care who the person is I care how effective they are and I want the best person in the most critical jobs and that's that's the only thing we should be doing this on and and instead we're worried about other things um, genders and pronouns and all this other stuff and you know the purpose of the military is the control and management of violence on a battlefield that is what the military does it it controls and manages violence it applies it where it's needed it makes sure it's uh, not running amucks where it doesn't and uh, goes from there uh, talk about our border talk about our border uh, a group a historical group asked me I haven't done it yet to do a presentation on the Pancho Villa raid or Pancho Villa raid in 1916 against Columbus, New Mexico. And of course, when you start looking and researching that, you just, the, the problems with our current border are always in your background. And you know, the, the big difference is the last time there were criminal cartels, you know, trying to control the border, trying to attack Americans and everything else. We sent the army after them. We sent the U.S. Army into Mexico looking for these guys and scared the hell out of the Mexicans. We did. We did it. 
Nowadays, because basically the revolutionaries and people like Via and all that, they're, they're not that any different than the cartels. Uh, they used intimidation, violence to, you know, get the behavior they wanted, to do what they wanted. Um, they were basically a law unto themselves, all these, all these things that the cartels are. So, consequently, uh, we have something that's much, much worse. These drug cartels run the border, human trafficking, fentanyl, and all that, and our country just turns a turns an eye to a blind eye to it. I mean, in 1916, we would have had the entire army down on that border, and uh, you know, when we caught these guys, they would have paid the price. They would have paid the price. But not so anymore, and that's the that's the state that we're kind of in. I won't even talk about elections. I won't even talk about how our country is being stolen from us right in front of our eyes because somehow, when I was a kid, we knew the next day who'd won all the election. I mean, through the '60s, '70s, '80s, and '90s, we never had these long, drawn-out races where it seems in many cases that they're just looking for votes and little bundles of votes seem to show up Uh, that's bullshit and that is not democracy that is that is something else and so uh, I think the whole election thing has to be relooked if we want to have honest and restore integrity and trust in our election system okay well we are now 26 minutes in uh gonna go to my favorite part which is questions and answers and i got a few backing up so i'm gonna get right after these um all right uh i've been talking about 38 smith and wesson obviously that probably interests (laughs) no more than four or five people who listen to the podcast but here's some more how do you make 38 smith and wesson brass out of 38 special and the answer is I don't make 38 Smith & Wesson brass. I make brass that will function in a 38 Smith & Wesson revolver. And what I do is is quite simple. I have a cheap Harbor Freight chop saw. I have scroungy 38 special brass, which used to be really easy to find when all the cops used it. Now it's a little harder to find, but you can still find scroungy 38 special brass. And what I do is I measure it to... 0.775 which is the length of a 38 Smith & Wesson brass cartridge the empty cartridge case and I go ahead and I chop them off at that and since my Harbor Freight chop saw is not exactly a precision instrument chopping at exactly square I have to take a Dremel tool and kind of just level it all off to make sure it's not you know cut in a, a bit of an angle or something so I do that um, then I load them and um, let me just go back and say here's how I learned how to do this Uh, I won't go into the whole story but I have a personal connection to the JFK assassination through somebody who my father knew not like we were involved or anything but just somebody we knew so I've always been kind of fascinated by it I haven't read all the books but I have watched all the documentaries, probably. And one of the things that that, that uh, always caught my interest as a gun guy was after Lee Harvey Oswald 
murdered JFK, he murdered a Dallas police officer named J.D. Tippett, who just kind of, hey, said, thought this guy looked suspicious, went over, accosted him, and, and um, uh, basically Oswald shot him with a, what appeared to be a victory model revolver um, that was originally 38 Smith & Wesson that had been converted into a snub nose and the chambers had been reamed to accept 38 special cartridges. Now the problem with that is is that it will bulge the cartridge. They don't rupture but they bulge. So it, it was not a great conversion but it was kind of like the shaved Webley conversion from 455 to allow the use of 45 ACP. Uh, it was done because there was no 38 Smith & Wesson ammo around really in the 50s and 60s or it was hard to get or the gun was just more marketable as a 38 special so consequently he had this he had this gun so i thought well if he could shoot 38 special in a 30 in a cylinder that had originally been 38 smith and wesson you can do the obverse you can cut down 38 special and use it in a 38 Smith and Wesson and lo and behold it does work and you know it's kind of a nice way to keep some of these older guns going you know um, you know there are a lot of different flavors of 38 Smith and Wesson chambered guns so your mileage may vary be very careful of the brake tops um, mine are well I've got one brake top Webley, but that's a very strong gun you know it's a World War II manufacturer and it's in it's in good shape so it, it works I find that the chambers in that are a lot more generous than the um, um, Colt Police Positive or the um, uh, Victory model that I've shot and by the way Victory models come in two flavors the ones we supplied to the British Commonwealth were in 38 Smith & Wesson the ones that were supplied to the uh, US Navy and, and uh, in particular and other um, you know army air corps and, and everybody else who had them um were actually in 38 specials so um you know you can't get two different flavors of victory models so by using the term victory model i'm not implying that they were all 38 smith and wesson so it's it's uh it's how it works it it, it works for me i'm able to kind of produce some brass that way nice way to repurpose old scroungy brass uh, a nice way to keep a, an older gun that's I got some difficulty finding ammo going um, you know I have found that my hand loads with the 200 grain bullet shoot better than the 140 the 146 grain loads factory loads have always shot like garbage for me they've never never been accurate and they've never really shot point of aim uh, the 200 grain bullets though do um, the British started out using a 200 grain and then they went to like a 178 FMJ. They went 200 grain lead. Then when lead bullets were forbidden before World War II, they they um, went to a 178. So if you're in that 180 to 200 grain, I think you'll have pretty good success. The good news is Lee makes that 200 grain 358 bullet, which you know drops a little bit bigger, um, and uh, it shoots well. Uh, I, I have powder coated it and it shot well and I've also uh, Alox lubed it and it shot well so there you go that's that's a way to get back in there and uh, Lyman cast bullet handbook has got some good loads good mild loads in there for it so shoots pretty good a lot of fun it's a, they're fun guns to shoot a lot of history with them so 
Uh, this is kind of going back to cost control. I'll just cover it real quick. Lee molds and powder coated bullets? Question mark. Somebody sent me that. Yes, Lee molds are really good, and they can produce um, any bullet can be powder coated. Doesn't really matter what the lube design of it is. The uh, tumble lube bullets that Lee makes um, has designed those powder coat fine, as does the. Um, uh, just the traditional one. You just don't need to put any lube in them. You just powder coat them and they're good to go. So very quickly, we just knock that one out. Yes, um, Lee molds do a great job. They're still inexpensive and um, pretty good. I think a two cavity mold is about thirty bucks, and a um, the five or the six cavity um, mold is probably somewhere somewhere south of uh, $60 so there you go they're good molds though they, they seem to good I've got I've got a bunch that I've accrued since I since I was 17 I've actually got some of the original ones they are a single cavity you know 45 uh, 230 grade 45 ACP bullet you know it's like hey it's surprising how things have changed when you look at it that the fact that a single cavity mold was kind of a cool thing back then and kind of a kind of a good deal Okay, bench rest and match primers. Are they worth it? Um, I know that some people are going to say, but I've got this wonderful load and, you know, the bench. I, in, in my mind, they do not. Um, I, first of all, I don't understand how bench rest primers and match primers are better than regular primers knowing how primers are manufactured um, I don't see the I don't see where they can change and improve the quality because they primers have to be very uniform and very high quality so I don't see how bench rest or match primers are better I do believe that they are a marketing ploy and for the most part um, perhaps some there is some test out there which proves that they're superior and some guys will who believe in in voodoo will believe that they are superior and maybe in their experience it's the you know it's the primer they use in their optimal load you know maybe it is uh, for me I I would not pay first of all if if they're in front of me and I need them, I will buy them <laughs> because that's the way primers are nowadays. But given a choice, uh, I, I'm really hard pressed for a use where I would I would sit there and say I have to have a bench rest or match primer. I've just not seen the difference. And a lot of the guns I shoot, it, it's not going to make a difference in a service rifle. It just, you know, I hate to say it, it's just not. So I would say yeah, pass pass on the don't pay a premium for those pass on that uh, here's another one this is a weird one do you have any experience with black powder loads in modern rifles and and uh, calibers R rifles such as a 1903 or 1917 or British SMLE and a pistol like an M1911 or an M1911A1 etc um, I do not I know that there are some people who've done so um, you know the first 303 Enfield British Enfield uh, loads were black powder then they went to cordite and so I, I think 
I think you can do that. Uh, in my mind, it's not worth it simply because it's just not worth it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, if you have no other way of getting that weapon to shoot, then you're then I'd do it. You know, then I'd do it. But um, for some older there's, there's too many good smokeless powders for these more modern rifles. So if you're going to put that kind of effort into it, don't use black powder. I know guys who've run black powder 1911 loads because it's still kind of a large case and can do it. Uh, I think cleaning becomes then just a, a horrible chore. Um, you still have the buildup from black powder and even black powder substitutes. So no, I wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. Um, they're just... Powder is it's kind of expensive, but it's easy to get. As a matter of fact, it's a lot easier to get smokeless powder than black powder. So why do it? Why do you even consider doing it? Okay, do you still think surplus handguns are good for self-defense? Uh, the answer I have is if you already have it and it's not a collector's item, then fine, use it. You know, fine. It's as good as anything else. Um, I would not go out and try to buy a surplus handgun with the idea that it's going to be your primary self-defense gun. Uh, buy it because you want it. Buy it because it's history. Buy it because you like surplus. But don't buy it with the idea that it's going to be your, your EDC, your everyday carry, or your, you know, your primary go-to gun. The reason I say that is there are too many decent guns being made now that... Uh, they're low cost and they're effective and you know you need a you need a gun for the bedside well you know get a PSA dagger it's 300 bucks you know I mean you're not going to find hardly any any surplus um, pistol anymore for $300 you're just not you know why pay $500 for something that if you actually used it then the police are just going to take it from you anyway so um I would get the I would get the dagger. Okay, the, you know they have broken the code. There are companies now that are producing these very good Glock clones that can even use aftermarket Glock stuff. PSA is one of them. I think there's a couple of others. Um, and what they're doing is they've they're bringing the price point down of a Glock style firearm. Uh, I can tell you here's the here's the when Glock first came out. To produce a Glock 17, and this is going back to the late 80s, early 90s, it, it cost $78. I mean, you know, if you, that's what it costs to manufacture the gun, 78 bucks. You know, that's what the assembly line just kind of cranking them out the way they do, you know. So it's 78 bucks. So what Glock did was they went to police departments and said, hey, um, we got this great gun. It's a Glock. Everybody loves it. We'll sell them to you for $125 a piece. And at the end of three years, you give the guns back to us and we'll give you a brand new Glock to replace it. What a great deal. Well, police departments went crazy over that deal. That's an awesome deal. There have always been kind of trade-ins, but nothing as, nothing as good as that. Now you say, well, how could Glock afford to do that? Well, Glock, they, they knew that, hey, it cost me, it cost me $78 to make. So $80 with the box, probably. Um, they sell it for $125. That's a $45 profit on every gun right there. 45, you know, 
basically a 33% margin markup profit right there. So then, you know, at the end of three years, the police department say, hey, you know, we bought 50 Glocks from you. Uh, two of them got lost. So we have 48 to give back to you. And you give them 40, and Glock would give them 48 new guns. Okay, and you say, well, how could they afford to do that? Because they only made $50 on the first guns. So now they're, they're and it cost them $78 to make. So now they're, they're underwater on these things by about 30 bucks. Well, what Glock would do is take the trade-in guns and they would sell them on the civilian market for like $325. So therefore, the guns they initially sold for $125 to the police, that gun really kind of winds up being worth about $475 in money to Glock at the end of three years which is a big, which means they make a $400 profit on a $480 that they've, you know, gotten because it costs about $80 to make. So they're, they're making all kinds of cash. And face it, at the end of the next three years, uh, they might do the same thing. They might make, they might change the terms of the deal a little bit. But, uh, you know, they're going to get, they're making money off these trade-ins is the whole point. They have a low cost. They have a high margin on the gun when they sell it in the first place. And then they're making 100% profit on, on it uh, when they sell it again. So uh, they're doing really, they, they did really good. And other companies now, I, I'm sure everybody in who sells to law enforcement does this now. I'm sure that, that it's a common practice. But... You know, there are a lot of companies that basically say, it's, of course, it's not 30-some years ago anymore, but, hey, I can make a Glock-style pistol for, and let's just let's just take an arbitrary thing, 200 bucks. Well, if I sell it for 300, I've just made a 33% profit. So uh, they've, kind of, they've kind of caught on at least a part of that Glock model for civilians, which is, hey, I can sell this gun for... 150 to 200 dollars less than Glock is selling it and it's functionally very close if not kind of the same gun because the Glock patents have all run out now and people can make them so there you go I mean as long as you have these 300 dollar guns like that uh, surplus guns just don't make any sense to to buy um, for that particular reason. Now, they make a lot of sense to buy for the fact that they're fun to own, they're great, they're pieces of history, and I love them. But that's that's the truth right there. You can. Um, you can get a pretty good gun for 300 bucks, and uh, who knows, you might catch them on sale and get them even less. I don't know. So, yeah, that's it. All right. Here is our next question is it true that high points are used in a lot of crime um i don't know because i don't know that they've they've done that what i have heard is that that high point has a very close relationship with like the doj and atf because so many high points are used in crime that high point is very cooperative in helping them trace the gun who it was sold to all the all the rest of it so apparently 
they actually send agents to learn how to do this because so much biz so much of this business goes through the high point deal that they kind of have these agents who inhabit high point and uh, work with them and learn how to do all that kind of tracing so I have heard that I do not know that it is true I believe it is because I heard it from reliable sources but um, anyway um, high points are apparently used in crime whether it's a greater rate than anything else I don't know I assume it is I assume it's because people who commit handgun crime usually are not enthusiasts and a handgun is a handgun to them um, and I just say I say good I think it's a good deal yeah let the bad guys use high points I'll use something better so you know that's kind of how I view that you know and there's always been a market for really low-end guns um, you know that was what they were always after I don't know if you've ever heard the term ring of fire the people who made Jennings, Brico, Jimenez, um, all these kind of very, very low-end, very inexpensive guns that were, for a long time, they were tarred as Saturday Night Special uh, specials. You know, there you go. I do believe, you know, I've seen a few of these things, and and frankly, um, they do not exhibit. They do not exude high quality. They're not inspired designs. I mean, um, their functionality is probably the magazines are very cheap, so I believe that they have magazine-related issues. Um, you know, but it was one of those kind of things that hey, if it works for the first couple of shots, that's all you really need. So people who were on say a fixed income meaning they don't have a lot of money to spend um, it's better than nothing and of course those kind of guns are also going to be uh, in a lot of low income areas where crime is high and therefore they're going to get used in it so uh, that that's it I don't even know if those guys are still around anymore I know they were they the ATF really wanted to put the kibash on all that and uh, I believe there was a YouTube channel where the guy went around trying to get into the factories and all that and they were just totally closed on it so yeah it's a it's one of the kind of the the things that nobody really it's under everybody's radar but it's kind of one of the more um, intriguing and uh, kind of secretive parts of the the gun industry and I mean these guys don't go to shot show <laughs> you know high point might I don't know but uh, I I've, the, the reason I've never cared for high points is number one people always say well but the high point carbine's good oh, okay great great it's it's good okay great or they they sit there and well i bought you know i'm a genius i bought a high point nine millimeter and it's as good as and insert whatever gun you have there you know now i will tell you there is no high point there can be no high point it's an impossibility that any high point could be as good as my sig p210 target um, there's no high point that's as good as my Browning High Power. There's no uh, high point that's as good as my Beretta 92. They're just they're just not there. They just don't exist. And what's even more is they can't exist because of the way they're manufactured and and everything else. They can't make a gun like that better than the established industry uh, standards you know that we would consider it by standard i mean you know beretta 92 is a 
pretty much an industry standard. Uh, I would argue Glock 17 is. I would argue that, you know, all kinds of other things are. And, or they fit those, kind of meet those standards for accuracy and reliability and everything else. And, and High Point does not. So there you go. So High Point is probably used in a lot more crime than people, uh, people realize. Um, just there. But it doesn't matter. People will beat... It's the old Einstein quote. He said, I don't know what weapons we'll use in World War III, but World War IV will be fought with clubs and rocks. So I, I kind of believe the same thing. No matter what weapons you try to take away from the criminal class, you will find that they will go to substitute weapons, and that's that. So it doesn't really matter. Um, it does not make the high point people evil that evil people get a hold of firearms and do bad things. Okay. What has happened since you started the podcast that you did not foresee? A lot of things. I did not foresee that the 2020 election would get stolen. I did not foresee that. Um, I did not foresee that COVID and the riots would cause an ammunition panic really like we've never seen. Um, the only thing that was close was Sandy Hook. And remember, for a couple of years, it seemed like we couldn't get any 22s. Remember, we couldn't get any any 22 ammo because everybody was you know, cranking out the bigger stuff. Uh, I did not foresee that Russian ammo would, would vanish in the haze and, and be off the market for two reasons. Number one, that that uh, the the old curmudgeon Joe bite me would be you know who doesn't know what he's doing would would make it essentially illegal, and then all of that was actually rendered moot by the fact that Russia invaded Ukraine and they have other uses for their ammunitions rather than trying to sell it to us, so it's all gone. Uh, I think there has to be, and I keep hearing that. People are wanting to do it, and there's factories in Poland that are doing it. There has to be some some inexpensive ammo. We need steel-cased 5.56 and 9 mil. We need those things. Uh, that helps our market. That helps the shooting sports. That helps a lot of things. So we need that stuff, and we need it. Um, it makes shooting affordable for a lot of people, and uh, we have to have it in the market. Just have to. Um, our big ammo companies are crazy for not doing it. They're crazy for not doing it. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, I hope they will change their minds and, and kind of go from there. Okay, next question. What would you like to see... If you, if what would be your Christmas wish is really what this says for a firearm for Christmas. That's interesting, interesting, interesting. I would still like to see a. Uh, let's say let's let's go interesting. Let's say a 50 GI Colt Anaconda. How about that? How about that? 
Yeah, that'd be good. And they could have, uh, and it would feed with uh, moon clips. Yeah, and you could bring it out in a four inch, a three inch, a four inch, a six inch, and an eight inch. How about that? That would be awesome. That would be so awesome. Especially the three inch, man. That would be what a cool, like super snubby. You'd be you'd be creating a new class of gun, the super snubby, and uh, you know that's that kind of ties back to the uh, the other thing that uh, the other question of what what is the thing you did not foresee? And I would say, the renaissance of the revolver, the resuscitation of the revolver, as people have now realized its advantages vis-a-vis -vis the high capacity plastic guns so I didn't see that either but yeah what I would like to see for Christmas a 50 GI Colt Anaconda yeah that would be and, and yeah three and the first one out would be three inches three inches that would be cool that would be very very cool well that's it for this edition of old school guns the podcast that tells you exactly like it is any question or comments, leave them in the comments section of Podbean or email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. But I hope everyone has a great Thanksgiving and a wonderful holiday season culminating with Merry Christmas. Uh, I'm sure that uh, we'll do a couple in between here and there. But anyway, until next time, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>